We're only doing the first three verses this morning, but uh, I'll read a little more. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And we'll stop there and pick up next week. Let's pray. Glorious Father, in our Lord Jesus Christ, We ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know you better. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think for a moment about family life and some of the things that are important in family life. One of the things that is important and that what most parents want and uh, none of them get are obedient children. (laughs) We struggle with that a lot sometimes, that our children are not as obedient as we wish they were. Um, But is that all we care about? Well, no, of course not. There's something far greater that goes on uh, to which obedience can facilitate, but obedience is not the do-all and everything about family life. Really, most of us want kids who are going to thrive. Now, obedience is part of that thriving. It's not disconnected from that thriving, uh, but we want kids who understand who who God made them to be and are utilizing the gifts that God has given them uh, for His kingdom, for His glory. This week was sort of an interesting week. Um, perhaps it was my time that I finally got some things done that have kind of hanging over me for a little while. But one of those things that I've been meaning to do is take care of the bikes. See, when you live in Arizona... It's really hard to keep a tire inflated. Some of you have just moved here. You may discover this uh, rather quickly. That is difficult. And so I've got like one bike in particular that that front tire always goes low and I can never keep it inflated for more than two days and my daughter wants to ride it and I want her to ride it, by golly. And then there's another bike where the handlebars keep slipping. And no matter what I do, no matter how much I seem to tighten that stupid nut, nothing works. So I brought it to the bike shop because... I'm helpless when it comes to these things. And it was nice to see my children rejoice in being able to ride their bikes. I take delight in their delight in being able to ride their bikes. Another thing that I worked on this week is uh, we had been gifted with a big new TV, and that meant we now had an extra TV. And part of what that resulted in is a TV dedicated to the Xbox, which we could almost never use because in our living room we'd had to move all the furniture out of the way. And so in, I don't know, six years of owning this thing, we've used it like three times. 
because I don't want to move the furniture. And so now it's got its own little place. And so I hooked it up yesterday, and Eli figured out, because we'd forgotten how to use it, Eli figured it all out, and just watching Eli not sitting in front of the computer, but jumping and laughing, and the Asher in there throwing around too, and that does a father's heart good. Because not only does obedience matter, but in a family life, joy matters too. So let's think of this text in light of that larger picture. Is obedience the only goal of Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection? And to, to, to that, Paul here answers right off, no. Paul shifts from his discussion of obedience and humility those are important things. Uh, he's been talking about, as you remember, from the end of chapter 1, what it means to live as a good citizen of God's kingdom. And he focuses on uh, that humility and obedience. But now he gets to something very different. It would be better if we kind of translate that first word there in chapter 3, not as finally, but more in terms of moreover or next. Because that is part of the semantic range of that word. And it's interesting that as I began my my own studies in the language, I kind of said, well, why are they translating it that way? And then almost every commentator I read basically said, why are they translating it that way? It should be this. Because <laughs> Paul is not wrapping up his discussion. He's moving to, in a sense, a different aspect, new information. He's been turning over that idea of obedience in humility, first through Jesus, then Timothy, then Epaphroditus. Now he's moving on to something a little different. And therefore, he issues a command to them. Now note, brothers, family language. Okay? So my little thing there about family life is not so maybe as disconnected as we ought to think. Brothers commands them, rejoice in the Lord. That. Obviously, that sounds like an odd thing to command someone to do, to rejoice. But nonetheless, he does it. Paul has in mind this, because of the, the corporate nature of this command, he has in mind initially the public worship, but we should not limit it to the public worship. This is an attitude that should infect, or um, in a positive sense, should be reflected in our personal private worship as well as our public worship. To rejoice or to be glad is a common command in the Psalms. In fact, Psalm 33, from which our call to worship uh, is taken, has that very command there. They were to rejoice in the Lord. And it's connected, this word is connected to the idea of thriving. Of, of becoming who you were intended to be by God's creation. And so, when we we think of joy, what we tend to do is we tend to connect joy to our ever-changing sorts of circumstances. And it's right to rejoice with certain circumstances. Uh, the Boyers learned that uh, Doug's house was undamaged from the hurricane. That's cause for rejoicing for the Boyer family and for us. It's 
good for us to rejoice that Andrew Brunson has been re- uh, released from the prison in Turkey and is now free and back in the States. It's good to rejoice, but our, our, this command to rejoice is not limited to our changing circumstances. Remember, the one who wrote this, Paul, is in prison. He has not yet been freed, and yet Paul rejoices that the gospel goes forth even though he's in prison. He keeps rejoicing over a number of things in this letter so far, even though circumstances may not be all that he wishes that they were. And so why is it that we should be rejoicing? And it gets back to this idea of in the Lord. We we rejoice because in the Lord we have a Creator who cares for us and who gives us direction and purpose in life. You're, you're not an accident. But you are purposefully made. Beautifully, wondrously made. And He has a reason for making you, even with the flaws that you might still have. And so we rejoice because we have a Creator. But we rejoice that we also have a Redeemer who removes the burden of our guilt, who removes the burden of our condemnation, so that we are welcome in His presence. We rejoice because we have in Jesus a shepherd who died to give us life, a shepherd who was raised again and and lives to protect us. We should recognize this idea that by faith we are united to Jesus and therefore we receive all of His benefits together with Him. That's the idea of in the Lord. It's not simply things we have because of Christ, but because we're in Christ. Because we're united with Christ. One of the best pictures of that, of course, that God has given us is marriage. Amy has certain blessings. We're not going to talk about the curses. (laughs) Amy has certain blessings because she's married to me. When we got married, I I was, uh, you know, in my 30s, I was obviously a bachelor, and I had my own house. I didn't have a whole lot of money, but I had a house. And when she married me, that house became her house. She didn't work for it, but it was her. She had the benefit of the house and she tore down my decorations (laughs) and made it hers and it looked better. So my bank account became her bank account. I got some stuff too. I got a car that I hadn't worked for. So it worked both ways for us. But that's just a picture of this reality of of now being united to Jesus Christ. All that is His is now ours. And that is part of why we rejoice. We rejoice because the forgiveness that He purchased with His blood is now ours. We have pardon from our sins. Not only that, but because we're joined to Jesus, we've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit upon our salvation. We rejoice because we have a Jesus who fights for us as our elder brother. But He also fights in us so that we can become more like Him in our sanctification. 
We rejoice because God the Father has adopted us in His beloved Son and has given us an imperishable inheritance that we will enjoy forever. These are many causes for rejoicing. I did not exhaust it. But Moses Silver in his commentary notes that in its your reflection for the week so you can go back and see it. But we can see that we need to rehearse this good news. We need to rehearse the benefits of the gospel that we receive in Jesus Christ. We need to sing these things. We need to pray these things. We need to preach these things, not just to one another, but also to ourselves. Or perhaps, if you're an introvert, I should say, not just to yourself, but also to one another, depending on who you are. So that you grow in your joy despite your circumstances. And so, the great news of Jesus is intended to produce joyful worship in His people. God is concerned about obedience, but not just obedience. He wants you to rejoice in worship. So this leads me to kind of a second question. Okay, if God wants me to experience joy in my worship, and that includes my my private worship, why don't I feel more joy in worship? Why don't I experience more joy in my my daily life? I can't just say I'm a melancholy kind of soul. Uh, I'm called to experience joy. Paul, I think, gets to that as well. There's a better translation that is here as well. Because Paul is not writing again because he's lazy. Okay, He's writing to them because he wants to confirm them in their faith. There's, this is a weird sentence. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. That, that conjunction is probably better off being an adversative conjunction, a but as opposed to an and. And that idea of trouble really has to do with lazy, slothful. And so Paul's saying that to write these things to you again, to repeat these things, is not the result of me just being lazy, but it is important for your well-being, for your safety, that you be confirmed in these truths that I am speaking to you. He's saying these things precisely because there is a danger that Paul believes is near and possibly present. He needs to repeatedly warn them about this danger. And we also need to be warned regularly of the dangers that present themselves. Sinclair Ferguson has said in other places, and I think it applies here, that we are prone to spiritual amnesia. We're prone to forget who we are in Jesus Christ, but we're also prone to forget the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. We're also, I might add, prone to forget the dangers that are present to us because we are in Jesus Christ. We tend not to want to think about the dangers uh, that are present. And so Paul reminds them for their good, in many ways like a parent. The Philippians may have responded much like children sometimes do. I know that. Well, just making sure. Three times he says, look out. Three times, emphasis. Look out, look out, look out. you got to get this. 
This is important. This is not an exhaustive warning. This is not the only three times, uh, rather the only three things they're supposed to look out for. It's not meant to be that. But he is addressing, as I mentioned, this clear and impending danger. He sees what's coming. And he wants them to keep their eyes open so they're not caught unawares and destroyed. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Question. Are these three groups or one group denoted by these three phrases? That's an important thing. Let's first look at the three phrases and then get back to that question. Dogs... Most of us like dogs. But dogs were considered unclean and dangerous animals for the average Jew or Greek. They were used primarily as watch animals, therefore they're dangerous, or they were feral animals that were not at home in your house. We sort of experience this uh, when you adopt internationally. Your kids come with baggage with dogs. And so even though those of you who know Lulu know that she is the sweetest dog that you could ever imagine, that she wouldn't hurt a... Well, okay, she's eating some flies. Um, (laughs) But she's not the one chasing the rodents in the backyard. That's Cody, okay? She loves people. And she just wants to be close to people. And yet, I bring home those children, and it's like, ah, you'd think that this dog had big, sharp, pointy teeth and was growling and, and just couldn't, or holding her back from destroying my children. That's what you would think. And that was the experience of most of these people. And so dogs is a loaded term for them. It's something that's unsafe. But not only that, within a Jewish context, it was used for Gentiles. For instance, in Mark 7, Jesus is talking to the Syrophoenician woman, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. I know some people who do that. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so this, the dog is one that is outside and one that is not part of the family. And yet she, he talk, she talks to Jesus about the fact that they eat the scraps. You can't stop them from eating the scraps that fall. And she just wanted a scrap because she was a dog. We see in Revelation 22 that outside the New Jerusalem are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so Jesus places these things in the Revelation. Dogs are part of those who are unclean and unfit for the new Jerusalem that he is fashioning even as we speak. This idea of workers of evil reflects the fact that they do and most likely encourage others to do evil. I've listened to the pleas of my children, a couple of them anyway. And so the older kids and I are watching Stranger Things on Netflix these days. And there was a scene in um, the beginning of episode three, and I knew this because I'd already seen it. And so we, 
uh, kind of fast forwarded through through a few things, but then I paused because this whole scene is a young man pressuring a woman, a young girl, for what you might imagine, sex. And while I didn't want them to see that, I, what I did want them to see was the look on her face when she was getting dressed to go, the look of regret. And I, and I needed, I stopped and I talked to my kids about this, about how young men often do this. And I don't want my sons to do this, to pressure young women. And I wanted my young girls to know that there will be a day when there are men who will pressure them for something that they believe is not right to offer yet. In other words, they will encounter people who are working evil and encouraging them to participate in evil. So I paused and we talked. Mostly me. Okay? A little bit of Jaden thrown in there. Workers of evil. Paul then mentions this group, this mutilators of the flesh. And we know that there were some false religions that advanced the cutting of the flesh. Uh, for instance, uh, it's warned against in Leviticus 21.5. But we see in that great confrontation on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, what are the prophets of Baal doing? Oh, they're cutting their flesh, and as it says, so the blood flowed. All to get the attention of their God. And so a false form of worship is what is, is being addressed here, this idea of the mutilators. But I believe that Paul is not talking about three separate groups. Paul is talking about one group, but he's talking about them in these three ways for emphasis. He is speaking of the Judaizers. Because wherever Paul went, they were sure to follow. Or it sure seemed that way, and we see that right there in the context of Acts 15. They would show up after Paul inevitably. And what they would want to do is they would want to talk to all of these Gentiles that Paul had converted to Christianity and say that, well, you know, you have part of it right, you have the Jesus part of it right, but in order for you to enjoy the full blessings of God, you also have to be circumcised like we Jews are circumcised. So for them, they were saying that they viewed themselves as righteous, they, they were promoting circumcision in the flesh... Okay? Just like they thought they were saved by it. But what Paul is saying is that in fact, instead of, um, basically they have joined the Gentile dogs outside of the community of faith because they've added something to faith. Because they're depending upon this religious ceremony, now they are, in fact, workers of evil as opposed to workers of righteousness, which is what they thought themselves as. And instead of doing the true circumcision, they're actually mutilators of the flesh. They're working evil because of their false understanding of salvation their false doctrine, their false beliefs, and they're leading other people astray. Let's not think that it is limited to way back then 
the Judaizing spirit is alive and well all over the world. And just this week, someone had asked about um, Church of Christ International, which used to be known as the Boston Church of Christ, or Church of Christ Boston, which was a cultic group that was on the BU campus when I was a student there. And one of the distinctives of them that made them a cult was, you must be baptized in order to be saved. They believed in baptismal regeneration. Essentially, you must, in addition to Jesus, you need baptism. They corrupted the doctrine of baptism and were pro- promoting a false understanding of salvation. They were, in fact, workers of evil, who, while not mutilating the flesh, certainly counted the flesh as if that was a badge of honor, boasting in themselves and their own ministry. False doctrines like this continue to rob people of Jesus, and therefore the joy that is to be found in Jesus Christ and the proper worship And so Paul has not made sort of this wild shift in his thinking, but I think it's actually connected to the reality that of the command he just gave. Don't lose your joy in Jesus Christ by following the false doctrine of these people. They're going to steal Jesus from you and steal your proper worship and steal your joy. This leads me to a third question. So, if there's true worshipers and false worshipers, how do I know who the true worshipers are? That's a legitimate and important question for us to ask. Who are the genuine worshipers of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And so Paul here addresses these issues of identity and and, and, and commitments and explaining who we are and how we worship. It's odd. He says, we are the circumcision. Okay? Remember, the Judaizers went by that name, nickname of the circumcision. They saw themselves as, some translations will add this, the true circumcision. Because not only were they physically circumcised, but also they had Jesus. Okay? So they understood themselves as sort of the true circumcision. Uh, Paul is talking about the true, true circumcision. Because it's not about what is done in the flesh. And it has never really been about what is done in the flesh. Okay? He's relying primarily upon the Old Testament in his thinking about this. He's thinking about the circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. For instance, in Jeremiah 9, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. In other words, physical circumcision was not the point. It was only a sign and a seal. It's never, it's not the real deal. We saw that in our reading from Deuteronomy 10, where God encouraged them, or commanded them rather, to circumcise their hearts. We see in Ezekiel 44 something similar. Uh, Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh and of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. It's not just the circumcision of the flesh, but it's also the circumcision of the heart that mattered. 
In other words, the bodily sign was not the reality. The bodily sign always pointed to the reality of the circumcised heart. It astounds me when I come across people who think that those two things have no connection with one another. And I go, how can physical circumcision not be pointing to spiritual circumcision? That is the nature of a sign to point to something else. And the something else to which it pointed was the circumcision of the heart. Heart circumcision was not only necessary, but it was also promised by God. In Deuteronomy 30, we see, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, oops, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Let's unpack that for a second. Apart from the circumcision of the heart, okay, you will not love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Apart from the circumcision of the heart, you will not live spiritually. But note, in this instance, it is not something that you do to yourself, that you do for yourself, but it is, you know, he's not asking you to perform heart surgery here, right? Okay? On yourself. But he's saying, the Lord's going to do this. It is something that is unseen by the human eye, except from its resultant manifestations. You see it because you find someone who loves the Lord with all of their heart and with all of their soul, someone who lives in accordance with God's revealed will. This promise that is given in Deuteronomy 30 was not just for them, but also the heart of their offspring. So who is circumcised in this way? It's the one who's repentant, who's no longer stiff-necked, as we saw in Deuteronomy 10. It's the repentant who love God with their heart and begin to walk in His ways. And this is Paul consistently says this throughout the New Testament. For instance, Romans chapter 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the reality of the circumcision of the heart is something produced by the Spirit of God in keeping with the promise of Deuteronomy 30. We see as well, Colossians 2, In Him, Jesus Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made not without hands, sorry, made without hands, can't read today, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. They were circumcised in Christ. 
The circumcision of the heart takes place in our union with Jesus Christ. And so, those who believe and are declared righteous in Christ are those who are circumcised of the heart. In other words, if we go back to Romans 4, what does Paul say about circumcision? It is a sign and a seal that righteousness is by faith. Which points us before the giving of circumcision to um, Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. One of the verses that Paul just keeps hammering the Roman Christians on in the early parts of the letter to the Romans. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation has always been through faith in God's promise. And God's promise is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Therefore, salvation, now Paul would say, is by faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Because all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So because it's a sign and seal of righteousness by faith, we recognize that those who have received what the sign points to are those who believe in Jesus Christ and therefore have been declared righteous by God. They're not trusting in religious rites. They're not even trusting in their baptism. But they're trusting in what their baptism points to, which is Jesus. So, there's that aspect of it. True worship is, is done by those who are circumcised in heart. True worship is by the Spirit of God, meaning it takes place by the Spirit of God who guides and empowers us, who stirs us up to engage in this work of worship. But again, this gets back to faith. Galatians 3, let me ask you only this, he says to them, because they were, they were confused by the Judaizers in Galatia. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer that he expects them to give is, well, hearing with faith. So we, we receive the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ, and that same Spirit works in us so that we worship. This is not some people, depending on the background you have as a Christian, there can sometimes be some confusion about that idea of what it means to worship in the Spirit. Some people think it has to do with spontaneity. No, it doesn't have to do with spontaneity. Some people think it's being moved emotionally by things. And that's not what is, is being pointed to here. If we remember that the Spirit and the Word go together, always, the Spirit speaks by the Word, and the Word is made clear to us by the Spirit. These are Reformational Protestant uh, priorities. Okay, We see that to worship by the Spirit means to worship in truth, to be bound where the Scriptures bind us, the Spirit produces within us truth-affirming 
worship, but also life-transforming worship. It's not about getting the good feeling. Okay, I've, I've been in their churches that it felt that way at times. But is it a worship in which you experience the grace of God for life transformation because the truth of God is being affirmed and held up. The Spirit also causes us to glory in Christ, to boast in Christ, to declare the worthiness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is not the focus of our worship, as J.I. Packer notes in Knowing God, he's, he, he's like a floodlight that shines on Jesus so that Jesus gets our attention because Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the redeemer. He is the, the one through whom and the only one through whom we can come to the Father. And so it is a lot about Jesus. <laughs> and the, the Holy Spirit is not worried about how much we worship Him. Because he's focusing us on Jesus. We see something similar to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Reputedly among Calvin's favorite verses and one of mine too. Because of him, referring to God, you are in or united to Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Not in himself, but in the Lord who united him to Jesus. In the Lord who is Jesus, the Messiah. And in Jesus, who is our wisdom, Jesus, who is our, our righteousness and our sanctification, the wholeness of our redemption. And so we boast in Jesus and not in ourselves. He contrasts these people with those who, have, who place confidence in the flesh, the Judaizers, and all who are like them. And so we're meant to rest not in our own works, not in our own righteousness or obedience, not in our goodness, kindness, but we are to rest in Jesus, who is our righteousness. And so we see that Jesus circumcises hearts so that we will respond with love and joy, and I should say, in the power of the Spirit. So if you're one of those people who follows my notes, throw that in the power of the Spirit at the end of that sentence. And so gospel worship, which is what I've been talking about this whole time, is really a response of joy to Jesus and His work for us. Jesus sought us to make us true worshipers of God. Jesus circumcised our hearts so that we love God and want to walk in His ways. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gives us new affections, a joy in our great salvation that means that we boast in Jesus instead of ourselves and our own accomplishments. And this is in addition to that idea of sanctification, 
not in place of sanctification, but they're meant to be given together because we're united to Christ and we receive all of His benefits together, not one, but not the other. And so obedience and joy are meant to be joined together forever because Jesus gives both to those who come to Him in faith. Have you come to Him in faith? Let's pray. Father, thank You that even in the midst of this, I can rejoice in Jesus. And I have the privilege of boasting about Jesus every week. Uh, Thank You for that. Help us because we are easily distracted people. And we're prideful people. And so there are many ways in which false doctrine appeals to us because it puffs up the flesh. And so keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We want our eyes fixed on Jesus, and yet we we have a hard time doing that. And so we ask that you would be fixing our eyes on Christ. We thought very little of the shame and thought very much of the joy that was before him as he went to the cross for our salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.